We got a meeting at the mines in the back there. They're solving all the world's problems, right? I have no doubt of that. Those are three gentlemen that you can get a lot of wisdom from. Yeah. Yeah, motion approved. Okay, let's jump right into this. One thing that Yoli reminded me of is the cereal thing. Those of you guys that are asking, I don't know when the official cutoff is, but it's today. Okay, but if you still want to bring something in, we'll make sure we get to them. Uh, we got a table in the fellowship hall, or if you want to give to it and we go buy cereal, you can do that. Just write cereal or something, just so we know what it is. Um, just, yeah, Reese's Puff, Cocoa Puffs, Mini Wheats, anything like that. Um, and then we do have, like I said, Callie gets first right of refusal on all cereal brought in, so just so you know. So just be, be prepared for that. So, well, we're going to pick up where we left off. We cut it short a little bit last week, which is absolutely fine, but we're going to kind of pick up and get back into that. And, and get this idea of understanding the in his image part. And we're talking about the name, having the name of God. If we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and he blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, as we've been getting into this, I wanted you to understand that God's original design was for man to rule on the earth. That when he says have dominion, there is no argument about that. Man was designed in order to rule and represent God on the earth. Being an imager of God means to be a representative. It is not that he has hands and feet and all that other stuff, and maybe, but the fact of the matter is, is he was here to represent God on this earth. He turned over dominion to man. It was God's, he can do what he wants with it, right? And so he does that. Now, that was God's original design. We know what happened because we've looked at it, Genesis chapter 3, is that when the fall happens, it seems as if that authority was handed over to Satan. How that works, why that works, we don't really fully grasp it. But because of other parts of Scripture, we're able to see that certainly there is something to that. And so, as you're looking at this, you've got to remember, what was God's original design? As an example, those who are against the idea that God would heal, okay, has to ask himself a twofold question. Number one, is it true that our bodies are designed to heal themselves? Do you realize that medicine does not heal you? What medicine does is allow your body time to heal itself. If God designed your body to heal you, then why would God be against healing? Just think about that for a moment, okay? The other side of that thing is, if it was God's will for you to be sick, then wouldn't going to the doctors be going against the will of God? Right, this is what I'm trying to get at, is that we just got to think things through for a little bit and say, okay, let's ask these questions. And so what was God's design for man? Man was to rule and represent him on this earth, to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all creatures. We see that after the fall, we see in Exodus 19 the same thing. Uh, verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain saying, Thus you should say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So after man gets it wrong, God takes a nation and said, You nation will represent me now on this earth. And now when people look at you, they will see what my goodness is. And you'll see that argument when God is like, I'm just going to wipe these guys out and start all over. And Moses may say something, but it's for your namesake, Lord. You brought them out of Egypt to destroy them for your namesake. 
You see, God's name was upon the nation of Israel. God's name was upon Adam. He named both of them. He took Jacob and said, your name is no longer Jacob, but it is now Israel. When God names, it, it implies dominion. When Adam named all the animals, it implies dominion. He had the naming right. He named his wife. What does that mean? He gets the Lord over her. Woman, sandwich. It's Father's Day. I can say that, right? So we're seeing God's original design. I don't really have to finish that thought, do I? Because I could feel some heat up here all of a sudden. But when you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, as a part of the covenant with the nation of Israel, he says, You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, what's he talking about? It's not taking on the name of God as a curse word. It is taking on the name of God and not living up to it. It was Adam, originally, given the name by God, didn't live up to his potential, to what he should be doing. The nation of Israel did the exact same thing. They took God's name, but they didn't represent God in God's ways. You see, we don't get to pick and choose what we like. We have to go with what He says. And so as this, we begin to see something that God had set up, this naming aspect, is that the nation represented God. His name was upon them. So when they went forth, what were they going forth in? The name of God. So when they did bad, and they took wives from other nations, and they worship other gods. What was the name of God doing? Blaspheming. It was, it was adulterous. It was doing all of these different things that it shouldn't be doing. Because the name of God is above all of that. Then we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are... Uh, heaven and on the, on the earth, visible and visible thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Jesus came down as the representative of God. He was the express imager of the invisible God. It's the exact same phrasing. So Adam represented God on the earth, handed over his authority. Then Israel represented God on the earth and got a whole lot wrong. And then Jesus came as a man and represented God on the earth. You guys get that so far? So God has always on this earth had a representative representing him in the form of a man. Now let me show you another one. Matthew chapter 21. I want you to get this. I haven't read this one, but I want to show you this. This is Jesus talking. Okay, He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's oftentimes dealing with the uh, Pharisees of these, these phrases. But it says, verse 1, Now when, the, uh, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus went, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the, and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before those, uh, before and those who followed out uh, saying, now watch this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they recognized that Jesus had come in the name of God. 
You'll see in another place that Jesus says, I will not return until my people call out and say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. You see, God was being represented of, by Jesus. So can we look at the life of Jesus and say, well, how did he handle things? Is he representing God? Absolutely. And then we get to the other part of this because we've got to understand this. Man, created in God's image as his representative, broke God's laws. His authority handed over to Satan. The nation of Israel, representing God to bring forth Messiah, got it wrong. But Jesus, God's imager on the earth, comes as a man. And that's so crucial. Because he didn't come as God. He came as a man. He's wrongfully put to death because the wages of sin is death. And he didn't sin. And so therefore he defeats death through his resurrection. And he restores man once again to himself and reinstates his authority. That last part, we kind of know, but we don't live. We don't recognize. You see, in Ephesians chapter 1, and this is crucial. Verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and and your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks to you making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so we see the resurrection happen was he resurrected as a man or was he resurrected as God he's still in a glorified body he is still what we will be he is still man to this day he's in a glorified body when it all comes to fruition this is exactly what will be okay so apparently as what we see after the resurrection is that he could walk through walls how great would that be carrying in an armload of groceries Forget doors. I don't need them. Right? Or, if you got kids, boom. Right? That would be awesome. Can you imagine? I could torture my six-year-old. That would be so much fun. But, the thing is, is we see him as we are. We see him seated at the right hand, far above all principalities, powers, dominion, darkness. There's nothing named that is not, he's not above. And then we are his body. That is the church. So where are we? We're seated with him. We have that authority. Chapter 2, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus where did he seat us he sat us at the right hand of the father we are his imager representing him on this earth and it talks about here that those who have come to Christ who once walked according 
to the course of this world, the prince of the power of air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, of whom we all once conducted ourselves. But now, because of what God has done, we're no longer children of wrath. We have been raised up. That means that if you are truly an imager of Christ, your life is not your own. You don't get to do what you want. You don't get to take sin and call it not sin because it's convenient for you. You have to represent God. He's not bipolar. He knows what he's doing. And he created representatives for himself. So somebody calling themselves a Christian, which is the term that we're looking at, doesn't mean anything. Coming in the name of God. How many times have you heard somebody say, the Lord told me, and they come up with something off the wall. I had a pastor one time tell me that the Lord told him to divorce his wife and marry one of his congregants. He was proud of it too. I don't know if she had money or what the deal was. Do we know that that's not the Lord? How do we know? But he said the Lord told me. He's a pastor. He's a representative of God to not only to his church but to his community. How do we know that he didn't hear from God? Because he goes against what God clearly has laid out. This isn't hard. We don't get to pick and choose. We call that sin. Unfortunately for that, Many of the church went along with it. Do you know why? Because I like this concept, but it's not biblical. Some churches really worship their pastor as much as they do Jesus. Anybody wants to give that a shot, let me know. But it's sad. There are things like that happening all the time. Are we representing Christ? No. Did Adam represent God when he sinned? No. Did the nation of Israel represent God when they sinned? No. Did Jesus represent God every day? Yeah, why? He was sinless. He did. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. What if we just did that? Wouldn't that be interesting? You see, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them and says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does he say? He says, go and make disciples. Why does he say that? Because all authority has been given to me. So because of that, I've given it to you. You go and you make disciples. And then what do you do? You baptize them in the name. You put the name upon them. A disciple is somebody who's associated with a teacher. That's all it is. And so when we take on the name of God, there's an association marked along with that. There's an expectation of what you believe and an expectation of what you do and an expectation of what you say. You see, the religious people at the time did not like God's representative because he went against what they said that God said. The problem was that God did not say and God did not do. He only did what he heard the Father say and what he saw the Father do. That's it. And if they went against that, then they were wrong. We're talking about the Pharisees. This was a group. It had a name. It meant separated one. One who was separated. They had separated themselves. They were the uh, conservative group. They really are into the scriptures. But they had taken those scriptures. And to ensure that they could get nothing wrong and sin and be put into exile once again, they created all these other rules that you can't do. And Jesus is constantly dealing with them. You had another group called the Sadducees. And they were from the Zadokites. They were basically founded by a man named Zadok. And he didn't believe in any of the supernatural and would often go along with whatever Rome said. But there was a name associated with them. 
And they kept it political because they wanted to stay in power and they just wanted to get along. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So what did they believe? They believed wrong. How do we know? Scripture says the same scriptures they would claim. They twist them. And so they had a name and an expectation and a role and all of this stuff, the same thing that a Christian would. And there was a group called the Herodians. They followed Herod, which means when Herod went wrong, what did they do? They went wrong. So when a pastor gets off base and goes against Scripture, what should happen? Adios, muchachos. Y'all impressed with my Spanish? I've been working on that one. I mean, the thing is, is if we're going to call somebody a disciple of Jesus, they should represent Jesus. And the term we associate with that is Christian. Right? I'm a Christian. We hear it all the time. But you don't get to just say it. Right? If you've seen the office, you've seen the office, right? You're all worried now, aren't you? If you've seen the office, he's, Michael's having financial problems. Like, well, maybe you need to declare bankruptcy. So what does he do? He opens up his door. He walks out. I declare bankruptcy. It doesn't work like that. I'm a Christian. It doesn't work like that. You see, you're taking on the name. You're claiming the name. But we look at the fruit. The term Christian was a new concept. It wasn't something that was just thrown around. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. Okay? In Acts chapter 11, we, we read this last week. But I'm going to just put everything together just in case you were gone so you guys stay with me. It says, Now those who were scattered, the persecution arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What do we call those? New disciples. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas as far as Antioch. And when he came and he seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them that with the purpose of heart that should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Great many people were added to the Lord. What do we call those people? More disciples, right? Pick it up on a trend. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus, uh, to, uh, for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That is one of three passages that refers to Christians. This is about 42-ish A.D., somewhere in that. About 10 to 12 years after Jesus' resurrection, somewhere in that time frame. They weren't called Christians until that point. Why do you think they started to be called Christians? There was an expectation of behavior. There was things being documented that seemed to associate with that. Okay, let's look at another one. That's number one. Let's look at number two, Acts chapter 26. This is the second time that you will see the term Christian used. Verse one, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched his hand and answered, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which you have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. That's because he's about to go on a long diatribe here. Verse four, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem all the Jews know they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of religion I lived a Pharisee now stop for a moment what you're going to notice here is he does not explain what a Pharisee is he doesn't go into the belief system of the Pharisee he doesn't go into the actions of the Pharisee he doesn't talk, go about what Pharisees talk about or any of that stuff why do you think that is? he already knew right? because when you claim to be a Pharisee there's a certain expectation of words and things you do and you don't do and you should do and you avoid and all this other stuff right so he doesn't have to explain himself because everybody knew 
Let's go on, verse 6. And now I stand and have judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, that this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to obtain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So what's he doing? He's confessing of all the naughty stuff that he did. I've got to go against this name of Jesus in Nazareth. Verse 12. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission for the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Stop. Was he persecuting Jesus? Did he say before that I was persecuting Jesus? No, I was going against all those that followed the name of Jesus. So do you see the association together? You see, if the head is seated at the right hand, where's the body? So if you're speaking against Jesus and you're speaking against his church, you're speaking against the same thing. You guys see, I want to make sure you get that. It's important that we understand our role in this. You have to put all the pieces together. You have to accept it for what it is. But rise and stand to your feet, he said, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. To make you a minister of wit- and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. From power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So now he's given the message of what his commission was. This is what I was told to do. The very same Jesus that I was persecuting has now given me a job and a role. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and into the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, what did he do right there at the end? He went after and he said, this is the same thing that Moses and all the prophets, which King Agrippa knew of and probably believed. So he's not saying and speaking on his own authority. He said, I am doing and talking about the very thing that we have been talking about for centuries. Verse 24. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely know these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? What's he talking about? The words of the prophets. I know that you do believe. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. That's the second time the term is used. Almost persuade me to become a Christian. Well, what did he do? Well, he gave him the scriptures. He told him, like, look at my background. Look at my commission. And I'm just telling you exactly the same thing that Moses and the prophets said. Paul said, verse 29, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or change. 
And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free, but he not appealed to Caesar. And there's a whole story behind all of this stuff. That's the second time the term Christian is used. So we're starting to see, because of Paul's action, what being a Christian entails, right? We're starting to see that the words that they use, we can look and begin to piece this thing together. But it's only the second time. There's one other. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you, as though some strange things happen to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemy, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in the other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Third time. Three times in the entire New Testament the term Christian is used. It's not prevalent, but there's a reason that it was used. There's a reason that it became a moniker that is so associated today. Because the term Christian means follower of Christ. Christ being the anointed one, referencing to Jesus, okay? Before the term Christian kind of got thrown around, there was another term that was used. It was like a new sect of Judaism. It wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Sadducees, it wasn't the Herodians, it wasn't the Essenes, and any of the other ones, there were lots of them, right? Think about our denominations. We're all like, it's sad that we have all these denominations because we can't agree on anything. Hello? It was like that from the beginning. So, what we see here is they were followers of the way. Now let me show you this. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if any, he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see it used there. Look at Acts chapter 19. I know I'm going fast, but bear with me. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples he said to them did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe and he said to them we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit and he said into what were you then were you baptized and they said into John's baptism and Paul said John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him that is on Christ Jesus and when they heard this they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid hands on them the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied now the men were about 12 in all and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some were handed and, or hardened, did not believe, but he spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And thus continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So now you had uh, uh, disciples of John becoming disciples of Jesus. You see the transformation there. What was John teaching? Don't follow me, follow that guy. The guy that comes after me. We see that. But here we see the term, the way used again. When some were hardened and did not believe. You had some that did believe. What were they? They're now followers of the way. What we would call Christians. They're disciples of Jesus. But when some were hardened and did not believe, what did they do? They spoke evil of the way. So this term is being used. What we would use as Christian, this is how it was being spoken of early on. Let's go on. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. It says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, let's stop for a moment, okay? Now, I know I read this last week. First of all, itinerant means traveling. 
So they had a group of exorcists who were traveling around. And what you will see, it, it doesn't show this in Scripture, but Jewish tradition will tell you that they had a formula that they would follow. So as they were traveling around, think about the Roman Catholic Church today. They have exorcists on their staff, so to speak, that will go to an area if it is deemed actual, legitimate demon possession. And they have a formula to which they follow. These guys did too. One of the things they would do is they would get the name of the demon or demons, and they'd have to have that, or they couldn't exercise it. That's why it was so important when Jesus just cast the thing out. It was unheard of. They couldn't do that. When the, the 12 and the later the 70 went out, and they're like, even the demons are subject to us in your name right? We see the very same thing that these guys are invoking, but what do they do? What's the difference? See, they're using the name of Jesus. The name itself is just a word. It's, it's not where the power lies. It's the name and authority upon the person. What did they say? We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they've seen Paul at work, Obviously, they've seen the miracles that have taken place and likely exorcism. It doesn't say that, but I don't know why else they would do this. And so they said, well, we'll add this to the repertoire. We will put this into our formula. By the Jesus that Paul preaches, we exercise you. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Now this guy, these guys, what is their job? Exercise evil spirit. And this one's back talking. That's exactly right. That's a teenager. If those Jewish itinerant members were southern moms, be backhanded them, right? Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are their job is to deal with evil spirits. If they were effective in their job, don't you think word would have gotten out? Oh no. It's the exorcist. I have a hard time saying that word, not picturing Linda Blair. I don't know if I'm the only one. Oh Lord, help us. Anyway, their literal job was to do this. That tells us there was no authority. That tells us there was no power, and that tells us at best there was very little effectiveness. But who do you think funded these guys? I bet the temple did. I bet they were part of the temple system. I bet they were putting on a good show and a display, and they were looked at, not judged by their fruits, but judged by their display. Isn't it interesting? Jesus I know. Paul I know. Who on earth are you? There's a sermon in that, but we're not going to go there today. Verse 16. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified. Now stop for a minute, okay? So he jumps on them, and this smart aleck teenager demon, right, strips them naked, which is funny. And what does it say happens? This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. So somebody invoked the name of Jesus, but didn't have the authority of the name of Jesus. Why do you think that is? Now think about this for a moment. Because what if it, the same thing that any of us would do, if we went up in a situation like that, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. Right? Not in the name of Jim, not in the name of Kyle, not in the name of Stan, not in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out right? 
same thing. What if they did the exact same thing? What, what's the difference? That name of Jesus was given by God to Jesus. Yes, you will name him. There will be son Lord. You will name him Jesus. And his body has that same authority. If you're not part of that body, putting on that name is irrelevant. Invoking that name is irrelevant. But fear become, or falls on these people because word spreads. What do you think was happening with Paul? See, Paul had unusual miracles taking place. Paul, more than likely, was exercising the demons. All of these different things. What do you think is happening? That word spread too. Because why did they all start turning to him? Look at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them in total 50,000 pieces of silver. You don't have to be a mouth wish to know that's a lot. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit and when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He went to Macedonia, two of the, those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. There it is again. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have a, our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only this trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and, and the world worship. So what happened to a person who was the body of Christ outdoing the things of Christ? Word spread. So much so that they start burning all of these books and the magic spells and the sorcery and the nonsense that they were doing. And so as he begins to travel, a great commotion comes against the way. Why? Because these silversmiths were making money off of this. And now you're coming against us. Now you're coming against our, our livelihood. Isn't that interesting that we don't want the truth, we want comfort. Right? They weren't persuaded by Paul's words. They weren't persuaded by Paul's action. I'm telling you something, folks. It, it, I, I don't care how antagonistic somebody is against the, the, the power of God and the fact that God heals today. If your loved one's been in a wheelchair their entire life and in the name of Jesus they stand up and walk, your theology changes pretty quick. Pretty quick. See, that's what was happening with Paul. As he was just going about and doing life, he purposed in the Spirit. He's got to go. He's got things to do. And he got their attention. People don't want the truth. They want comfort. Let's look at Acts chapter 21 real quick. We start in verse 26. It says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So they were doing a vow, is what's going on here. That's the background of this story, and it's coming to an end. Verse 27, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So when they supposed that, that means he didn't bring them into the temple. Paul still obeyed the rules. He still played along. Verse 30, And all the city was disturbed. 
And the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to stop them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, uh, and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now stop for a minute. Understand what's going on. Commotion in Jerusalem is a problem. This has happened before, and the Romans were trying to keep them calm, keep things at bay. They allowed them to worship God in every way that they wanted to. The only thing they could not do is bring corporal punishment. They could not bring the death penalty. They can beat you. They can whip you, flog you, stone you, can't kill you. That is why Jesus had to go to Pilate. But anytime there was an uproar, they came in because they wanted to squash it immediately because if there were a lot of Jews and if they really rose up they might get their authority back so it's funny that as the commanders and the soldiers shows up they stop beating Paul right kind of nice then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and he asked who he was and what he had done and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another so they arrested the guy assuming he had done something wrong because the whole city's pounding on him So there's obviously something he's done wrong. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the turmoil, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. So he's trying to find out what's going on, but the people are just going crazy and cannot. And so they had to bring Paul, and the soldiers had to carry him up. And and everybody's just kind of closing in on him. Verse 37. Then Paul was about to be led into the barracks, and he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who sometimes ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So he's talking about a time past of which somebody tried to raise up against Rome. Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, so he's allowing him to speak to the very crowd that was just beating him. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God as you all are today. Now Gamaliel was one of the greatest teachers in that time and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and so now he is giving his his resume. Let me tell you who I was and where I came from. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring a change even those who were uh, there to Jerusalem to be punished so now we see he persecuted he's giving that same testimony what did he call those followers followers of the way okay now I'm not going to get into the rest of that story just know it's a long drawn out thing he's eventually going to go to Rome the bottom line is this he's using that term once again one more Acts chapter 24 verse 22 but when Felix heard these things having more accurate knowledge of the way he adjourned the proceedings and said when Lysias the commander comes down I will make a decision on your case so we see the term the way and we see the term Christian both being used but they actually meant the same thing now here's the question everywhere that the way was or the Christians were it seemed to stir up dissension for some reason. The question that I'm going to leave you with today, and we're going to pick this up next week, is there has to be a reason for that. 
Why is that? Why is it that we'll call it Christianity at every place they went that was birthed, if you will, out of the very same religious system that is fighting against this, that used the very same scriptures that that system used, and they're fighting against it. What was it that stirred them up so much against it? What made the Christians and these disciples of Jesus stand out so much to the religious and secular world at that time that they received this intense persecution? Ask yourself that. Think about that this week. And I'll give you some answers next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us and you've held it for us, that we can have correction and reproof, that we can be taught. The man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped in every way. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that it truly guides our lives, our beliefs, our understanding of who you are, because you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And so, Lord, I just thank you that our hearts are open to hear from your word, not just the things of comfort and the things that make us happy, Lord. We're not seeking our own desires, Lord. May we seek yours. And that in every part of our lives, we bring glory to you. And so, Father, I thank you for this open door of opportunity that you are giving us to share your love and compassion, to truly be your body, and that you are glorified in everything we do. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great Father's Day. Make sure you grab some beef jerky on the way out the door.